0: This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can automatically download new episodes to your chosen device every Thursday. Just tap subscribe for weekly updates. Now this month marks a hundred years since the death of the Antarctic explorer, Sir Ernest Shackleton, who is commemorated by a blue plaque at his former home in London. In fact, he's among six men who've received the same honour for their commitments to polar exploration, mapping the globe and pushing the limits of human endurance. Joining us to talk about their exploits is senior historian for the Blue Plaque Scheme, Howard Spencer. Hello, Charles. Nice to be back. Let's start off then with our first person from history, who is Sir James Clark Ross, born in 1800, died in 1862. He precedes some of the more well-known names, such as Scott and Shackleton, which people might have heard of. Sir james Clark Ross, how did he become a polar explorer?
1: Well, you could say it was in the blood, really, because his uncle, Sir John Ross, was also a polar explorer and, like him, a, a, a naval officer. And in fact, this was james Clark Ross's first experience of polar exploration, was going aboard the ship Isabella in 1818 with his uncle, on that expedition they rediscovered Baffin Bay in Canada. They were engaged in early attempts to look for the Northwest Passage which became this kind of holy grail for explorers around this time. That was an attempt to find a route round the north of Canada that would go to Asia and on to India. We'll be saying more about that as, 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 as this chat goes on, I'm sure.
0: Indeed. We will talk about the Northwest Passage with one of our other figures from history a little bit later on, but um, regarding Sir James Clark Ross's key achievements, um, what would you list them as?
1: Well, he proved that Boothia was um, an island rather than a peninsula. This was on the 1828 victory trip, which was also undertaken with his, with his uncle. He went on four other expeditions to the Arctic with William Parry. And June 1831, he located the Magnetic North Pole. Rather later on, he skippered his own expedition to Antarctica between 1839 and 43, on which he discovered Victoria land, Mount Erebus, the Ross Ice Shelf, which obviously was named after him, the Ross Sea, and Ross's gull, which is an a Antarctic seabird, is also named after him.
0: And it's interesting that he's done both the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere, as an explorer.
1: That's right. Well, he, he did cover both, as in quite a number of them that we're talking about do do that. I should say that he was also, he captained the first attempt to look for Sir John Franklin, who was famously lost and trapped in in yet another attempt to find the Northwest Passage. Um, and this was in, in 1849. But
0: um, how did he pave the way for other explorers? Uh, you, you've reeled off a, a list of key achievements there, Magnetic North being quite an important one. But um, why was his work so important to others who followed?
1: Well, I guess he he showed, if nothing else, he showed where the Northwest Passage wasn't. So, I mean, that's that was, that was one thing, I guess. And he, he also wrote up his findings in a book called A Voyage of Discovery and Research in the Southern and Antarctic Regions. Uh, which came out in 1847. So that was that was pretty important as a sort of you know a basic text, I suppose, and and and, and an explanation of what he found for um, further
0: uh, explorers who came later. His knighthood then was, I suppose, fairly well deserved based on the work that he'd done.
1: Yes, yeah, so, I mean, interestingly, he he turned one down, uh, turned it down once, and then and then accepted it a bit a bit later on. I mean, it was it was given for basically for his work in in both polar regions. That was that was it. That was the reason he got it
0: and if we look at his blue plaque then this is at two elliott place blackheath in london
1: well it is it's southeast london which is famously a bit of a tube desert so you're kind of on, you're on the overland stuff but it, it's blackheath railway station would, would get you there it's a, a lovely spot which actually faces the blackheath the, the the actual sort of open grassed area exactly the sort of area you would expect somebody like uh, james Clark ross at, at that time to have wanted to live really
0: yeah, what kind of property is it?
1: What sort of style? It's a Georgian three-story house, not massively opulent, but but you know nice enough. You'd take it as a gift. And uh, the plaque went up in in 1960, and it commemorates Ross's stay there between 1843 and five, which was just after his marriage to Anne Coleman. Anne Coleman, who he promised he wouldn't go on any further polar uh, expeditions after uh, they married. In fact, she released him from the promise in order that he could go on this attempt to look for Sir John Franklin.
0: Right. Okay. It's interesting that the plaque went up almost 100 years after he died. He died in 1862. What was the reason really for the blue plaque going up? Well, it's it's
1: the reason that any plaque goes up, really, which is public suggestion. Somebody suggested it might be a good idea and the council said, "Okay, well, we'll do that then, because it was done by the the London County Council in, in those days. So essentially, there's sort of no great grandmaster plan in this. It's it's really uh, comes down to who suggests stuff and what the council decide to do.
0: Now you just mentioned that his wife allowed him to go on a further trip and uh, withdrew her promise. So did he die? Shall we say of natural causes or? Yes,
1: he d- he died at his home in Aston Abbotts in Buckinghamshire, which is where he and Anne lived latterly. She actually predeceased him by five years, and he was apparently never really the same after her death. They were very close, very attached.
0: So moving on to John Ray now, who is our next explorer. Born in 1813, died in 1893. His plaque was erected at four Lower Addison Gardens in Holland Park, which is quite a very nice area actually of London, uh, West London I believe. He was a Scotsman though, as well as being an Arctic explorer. So how was he drawn to exploration? Was it to do with the fact that he was born up in the wilds of Scotland?
1: Uh, it may have had something to do with it. He certainly was in in, in the far north. He was actually an Orcadian. So Orkney. Yeah. And he trained in medicine. He joined the Hudson Bay Company, who, as the name would imply, um, a trading company based in, in Canada around Hudson Bay. He was originally a surgeon aboard one of their ships. And he then moved on to being a surgeon at one of their stations on on Hudson Bay. And it was there that he learned the rudiments of surveying. And actually, that's, I guess, the sort of key that got him into exploration generally was was mapping large areas of coastline. He did a big survey uh, of the North American north coast in 1846 to seven and then another one in 1853 to four. In all, he mapped about 1,700 miles of coastline, which is pretty extraordinary, given that he, he did you know a lot of this on foot. Yeah, he really was a very considerable and, and underrated figure.
0: So like Sir James Clark Ross before him, he was sort of paving the way for future explorers by doing the map work. Doing well, the- that's
1: right. Filling in, filling in the last gaps in the map in that particular region. That's, that's exactly
0: right. What other key achievements of his exploration would there have been?
1: Well, he discovered that King William's Island was an island. He also, very, very importantly, discovered where the Northwest Passage, which has long been sort of mythically described, actually went through. He didn't actually traverse it himself in a boat. That was uh, Roald Amundsen much later. But this was in 1853 to 4. He actually identified where it was. And therefore, many people believe he should actually be credited with the discovery of it.
0: This Northwest Passage is actually quite an important aspect to John Ray's story, isn't it? Because there's another person who is not featured in our Six Men with Blue Plaques, who is a chap called Sir John Franklin. Uh, He went on on an expedition to find the Northwest Passage, this route from North American waters across to Asian waters via Canada. Now, what is John Ray's connection to the disappearance of Sir John Franklin's expedition?
1: It was Ray who found out what had happened to the Franklin expedition, which was that they had become stuck in pack ice and they'd essentially died of starvation. And he discovered this via the local Inuit tribes who told him that there was a a sort of a, a group of Europeans who had died of starvation. They told him where it was. He didn't actually go and look himself, but knowing that there were other expeditions looking in entirely the wrong place for Franklin, he went back to London and uh, reported his findings. Unfortunately, this didn't go down well. I mean, he was was basically, it was a a case of shooting the messenger, really. He brought bad news, including the information that the Inuit passed on that the um, desperate crew had resorted to cannibalism, which we now know they did. But this, really? this didn't go down well at all. It was it was at the time, it was very much, with well, these, these are men of the Royal Navy and they'd never have done anything like that. And Franklin's widow was in particular very upset and she found Ray, as she put it, hairy and disagreeable. And as a result, he found himself at the centre of what we, what we would today call a media storm, really. A lot of people weighed in saying he was this and that, including Charles Dickens. And he was also accused of having only come back to London to claim the £10,000 reward, which he said, quite plausibly that he didn't know anything about and actually it's very likely he wouldn't have known anything about it because he'd been off in Canada. He did take the money but he did also share it with his subordinates and it it did leave him with a degree of financial independence later.
0: Where did this £10,000 reward come from then?
1: Well this came from the Admiralty. They put it up for anybody to try and find
0: out what had happened to Franklin. But he came back, listening to what you're saying now, he came back without evidence, he came back with oral testimony.
1: There were items that the Inuits were able to produce, which indicated that they were from Franklin's ship, so there was was that, it wasn't simply, he didn't simply take their word for it. But he was criticised for not himself going on to have a look, Uh, but to do that he would have had to spend another winter in the Arctic and that wasn't really practical, so that was one of a number of rather unreasonable criticisms that were thrown his way.
0: I see, so I I can kind of understand why he came back to deliver the news instead. I feel sorry for John Ray, really, but um,
1: well, he's getting his recognition now. He didn't get his blue plaque until 2011, and I think this this partly was because he did get into sort of bad odor for this. And it must be said too that he wasn't shy about criticizing the uh, Royal Navy for their own exploration methods, and and um, that didn't go down well either. He was himself very keen to learn from the Inuit and how they survived in the in the Arctic conditions. And of course, you know, why wouldn't you do that? Well, I mean, at the time, there was a sort of a, a sense abroad that these people were savages and that you you shouldn't be dealing with them. And that was a prejudice that Ray didn't share. And he sort of suffered because of it. I mean, he he did things like he used snowshoes, which, which the Inuits did. He was taught by them to find the crawberries that grew under the snow cover, which you could eat, and that would protect you from getting scurvy. So it was all sort of survivalist stuff that he that he learned from the Inuit, um, who had a name for him. They called him Agluka, meaning he who takes long strides. So um, they rated him, even if uh, people back here uh, didn't at that time. But as I say, I mean, he is, he is now at long last getting some of the recognition he deserves. His ancestral home, which is the Hall of Clestrain on Orkney, is currently being restored by a trust that's been set up in his name, which is re- really good news. And as I say, it was it was a really um, really good to see his plaque go up in 2011. I was there. Ray Mears unveiled it, which is entirely appropriate. Another great uh, contemporary
0: a survivalist, yes,
1: yeah, expert. And it must also be said that that in terms of blue plaques, we do like to commemorate quite good connections between person and building. And. You've got a bit of a problem, of course, with Arctic and Antarctic explorers, because it's in the job description that they're going to be away rather than not. But in the case of John Ray, he actually comes back to London in 1869 with Alicia Thompson, his wife, who he meets and marries in Canada while he's while he's there. He lives in four lower Addison Gardens, as it is now. It's been renumbered since he lived there. But he lives there for 24 years. So it's a really good long connection. And he, ha- he has a really fruitful retirement. And he really gets a lot out of living in London and the sort of intellectual stimulus. And he's, he's kind of belongs to lots of learned societies. He walks from his home in Holland Park to the learned societies in Westminster and so on. And thinks absolutely nothing of that. Well, I mean, he wouldn't, would he? he yes, I heard that story. 1,700 miles of coastline in, in, in North America. So it wouldn't really seem such a big deal for him. But uh, yeah, it was, it was really good to see that one go up.
0: Definitely. Was the delay partly down to more time passing and a more circumspect considered view being taken around his reputation?
1: Again, I don't think anybody had actually thought to put him forward before. I mean, he was he was put forward a few years before that. I mean, it does take a while for these things in the gestation, as it were. But I don't think he'd actually come up as a possibility shortly before the big plaque went up in 2011. A few, just a few years before that, he would have been put forward to our blue plaques panel that decide who, who gets the uh, awards. And they decided that he deserved it. And, and so it was.
0: So he had this um, rather nice retirement in London, did plenty of walking in and out of the city into town, as they call us, I know, via Holland Park, which is in in West London. I think you could probably visit that plaque quite easily on the central line.
1: Yes, that's right. Yes, you'd go to, I think probably Shepherd's Bush would be the uh, the nearest uh, tube there.
0: Or Holland Park, I guess, yeah.
1: Fairly short walk from both of those.
0: What kind of property is it?
1: It, It's an early 19th century terrace, a fairly ordinary house of that type. A bit less grand than James Clark Ross's one in Blackheath.
0: How did he die then? He had this, obviously, retirement, so I presume he...
1: He died at home. Uh, he was 80 when he died, so yes, he was a good
0: age. Well, let's move on to Robert Falcon Scott. He was born in 1868, died in 1912. We'll get on to how in a little bit. And he's associated with a property at 56 Oakley Street in Chelsea, which we'll talk about as well. Now, Scott of the Antarctic, quite a famous name, Robert Falcon Scott is the full name. He was part of this five-man team that went to the South Pole and Antarctica. This included Edward Adrian Wilson and Lawrence Oates, who we're going to talk about individually straight after. But before we talk about their expedition, could you describe briefly the background of these men and how they came together?
1: This is part of the sort of the final team that went to the pole. I mean, the entire ex- expedition was was much larger, something like 60-odd people who, who actually sort of descended on the Antarctic in all. So th- these were part of the sort of final push to the pole. Oates had, had an army background. The rest of them were all, three of them were seamen. Edgar Evans was a, a naval seaman. Henry Robertson Bowers was a merchant seaman. Scott himself was a Navy man. Edward Adrian Wilson was a trained scientist who'd been to Cambridge and so on. So they had slightly disparate backgrounds, I guess, mm. chosen for sort of particular expertises and so on for the final push to the pole.
0: And when did they set off for the South Pole? Because it's around 1912 that uh, fate has a role.
1: They set off from Great Britain on the 15th of June, 1910, which gives you an idea about just how long these things take or took in those days, the original sort of voyage out. It was an incredibly long-term and incredibly complicated endeavour.
0: We know they reached Antarctica, obviously, and this was part of a mission for this team to become the first in the world to reach the South Pole. So did they succeed in reaching the South Pole?
1: They did, but they they got their second. When they got to Antarctica, they discovered that Roald Amundsen, the uh, Norwegian explorer who'd already discovered the Northwest Passage in, in 1905, that he was already there and poised to launch a strike at, at the pole. They actually they actually met there. They were kind of pretty astonished, as you can imagine, to find him. And Amundsen was apparently very affable and invited them to sort of, you know, invited to help them with their care of the dogs uh, and, and stuff like that and offered them, you know, sort of showed them a site they could camp. And in fact, they uh, they refused that and went away and set up their base camp somewhere else. And Scott wrote that he thought the best thing to do was to
0: forget that the encounter had ever happened. Wow. They were really disappointed then.
1: I think it was a kick in the teeth. I mean, they'd already had a number of setbacks in sort of setting the, the, the ex- expedition up. They'd encountered very uh, stormy seas on the way over from New Zealand and, and so on. And, and uh, things had already started to go somewhat awry.
0: And I suppose that was the start of perhaps their luck running out. People who will know the story will know what happens next. But for people who don't, tell us what did happen to Robert Falcon Scott, Edward Adrian Wilson and Lawrence Oates and a couple of other men.
1: They did get to the pole in January, January 1912. But when they got there, they discovered a, a flag and a, a tent with a note in it from Amundsen's team indicating that they got there 34 days before which is going some and indicates how Amundsen and his team, which was based on husky dogs, were a lot quicker across the ice, uh, a lot more effective, and probably chose the, uh, the better route. They then began the uh, weary trudge back, having left supply depots along the way and eventually died in a tent uh, 11 miles short of their major supply depot. So it ended in, in a, a, a great deal of tragedy. Two of the party died first. Edgar Evans died after sustaining a head injury, and then uh, Oates, who we'll talk about in detail a bit later, but he he uh, he got frostbite.
0: Why were they um, short of reaching their supply sort of rendezvous? Was it bad weather or
1: they basically succumbed succumbed to exhaustion and and the weather? The run up to that was that there were problems with they chosen to rely more heavily on pony transports and on motorized sleds. The ponies selected didn't prove up to the task. The motorized sleds broke down. So they basically had to do a great deal more man hauling than uh, was originally intended. The result of which is that they were exhausted by the time they got to the section of the uh, trek where they were actually intended to do the man hauling. So this it basically didn't leave them with a lot in the tank. I think that this was essentially the problem, as, as I understand it. There's an enormous amount of literature about this, and Scott's had his critics and his defenders. I mean, I think it's probably generally accepted that there was some elements of poor planning in it, and that clearly you know, it didn't work out the way it was supposed to.
0: So were they kind of beaten by the weather, beaten by being, I suppose, crestfallen at the disappointment of not finding the pole first? And then, obviously, lots of other things didn't work out as well. The equipment let them down, ponies let them down. I suppose their energy levels dropped, their supplies dropped. Did they just all die of starvation and cold?
1: Yeah, essentially, that was it. I mean, actually, um, Scott did order Wilson, who was the, the sort of the medical man on the, on the final push, to issue everybody with 30 opium tablets. So they did actually have a means of ending it that way, should they should they have chosen to do so. But they didn't do that. They basically died of cold and starvation, very sadly.
0: And how do we even know that you know this is what happened to them? Because did an expedition go out to go and find them?
1: They were eventually found, that's right. Basically, the uh, people that found them, they just built a cairn over the uh, tent, fashioned some skis into a cross over it. And that's effectively where they remain. I mean, these days, they're buried under about 20 metres of ice because of the uh, blizzards and so on that have happened since. So that's where
0: they remain. Edward Adrian Wilson was among that group who died on that expedition in 1912. His plaque is erected at uh, Battersea Vicarage, 42 Vicarage Crescent in Battersea. Now looking at the timeline of these blue plaques, Scott and Wilson were both honoured with blue plaques in 1935, but Lawrence Oates... Only in 1973, it strikes me as rather odd that they weren't all recognised at the same time, given that they died all at the same time. Any reasons for that?
1: I think it was it was just that in 1935, nobody thought to suggest Oates. Plus, I guess Wilson was rather more important to the expedition and a rather more important figure in in polar exploration. I mean, Oates' significance is really owing to the uh, you know the story of his demise more than anything else. And, you know, Wilson was the chief scientist, and he was Scott's main confidant on the the expedition. I mean, that's why I think those two were probably chosen at that time. I don't know the definite details of that. The records are silent, as they say on that, but I suspect that's the reason.
0: But in some respects, Lawrence Oates's noble act of self-sacrifice is the story that I think many people will know just from popular culture, even if they don't have an interest in history or polar exploration they'll have heard of Scott of the Antarctic being the leader, but they'll also know about Lawrence Oates, even if they don't know his name, his, his sacrifice. So I find that quite interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I suppose it is, it is a resonant story. And for those that don't know it, I mean, basically, he went out into the teeth of a blizzard with the words, I'm just going outside now, I may be some time. And this was at a point when the rest of them knew, the three other men who were then still alive, knew that he, had, he was so badly frostbitten that he was, you know, basically holding them back. They couldn't tell him that, but he knew and that's what he chose to do. And it's an interesting event because, of course, it does. It also touches on changing societal attitudes to suicide, because essentially that's what it was. He wasn't going to come back and he knew that. And it was done in a, in a higher cause. But, of course, not very long before, you know, 100 years or so before, suicide was not only a, a, a mortal sin, but it was also a crime. And you couldn't be buried in a churchyard. You buried had to be buried in unconsecrated grounds, often at crossroads. That's the way it was until, until about 1820, when I think they relented enough to let suicides be buried in churchyards, but only under darkness and without a ceremony. And it wasn't until the 1880s that that was relaxed a little more. And of course, you know, this this is a sort of, I suppose, a, an ongoing debate in terms of things like uh, euthanasia but I think I think Oates's gesture and it was a noble gesture and that's that's how Scott described it at the time you know noble gesture of somebody who knew his own time was up who sacrificed himself for the benefit of others and it, yes so therefore that's that's why it resonates but in in terms of I'm talking about sort of scientific achievements and 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 you know legacy to and to, and to exploration and so on. Oates can't really be described as a major figure in that sense.
0: But from, I think, a human perspective, I think a lot of people who aren't scientific are just ordinary people would see that sacrifice and tip their hats in a way. Oh,
1: yes, absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a tremendous sort of human interest story. And it does as I have, have, have greater residences, too, as, I, as I've said. And I should also say that, unfortunately, Oates's plaque no longer exists. Uh, it was put up in 1973, as you said, on number 309 Upper Richmond Road in Putney. But the building was demolished. And this brings to the fore an aspect of the scheme, which is that fortunately or unfortunately, the plaques don't actually provide any statutory protection. They they are completely different from the listing system, which does do that. So while they are a badge, they indicate that something interesting happened somewhere or someone interesting lived there. It doesn't prevent buildings from being demolished. And since the scheme began in 1866, around 100 plaques have been lost to demolition. And our usual policy in such cases is to look for another building lived in by that person and try and re-erect either the same plaque or uh, if it's been damaged or anything or, or the inscriptions is no longer appropriate, then we'll put up a different one. And that, that does happen from time to time. Unfortunately, in Oates' case, that was really the only London building that he's connected with. His major connection was with Guestingthorpe Hall in Essex. But he was actually born in Putney and and lived, I think, the first 11 years or so of his life there. So it was a decent connection. And there is now a Putney Society plaque on the site of the building that replaced what was there. But English Heritage doesn't put our plaques on sites. It only has to be the actual building. I mean, for a charity that's concerned with built heritage, it seems right for us to be uh, insistent about it being the original building. After that, the really strong connection has gone once the building's gone. That's that's the view that's been taken.
0: I suppose though there is at least that memory by that group of people in Putney who have recognized Long-
1: Yeah, I mean it's, it's it's good that he is commemorating. I mean I think this is why there's room for more schemes other than ours, and there's plenty of others operating, and it's I'm I'm glad that there's something there to commemorate him. Yes. Um, there's actually something there to commemorate Henry Robertson Bowers, too. Who had a connection to Streatham, and I believe there's a private plaque on his old school in in Streatham.
0: And Bowers was part of that five-man crew. He was
1: part of the five-man push. Yes, he was. He was. The, he was one of the other members.
0: Worth saying as well that Lawrence Oates's plaque was demolished in 2000, so fairly recently, really.
1: I don't know whether there was any kind of outcry or attempt to save the building. I suspect there may have been something, but it's really a kind of a planning decision. The plaque is actually in, in our store. We have a store at uh, Rest Park, which is one of the English Heritage Properties in Bebyshire. Um, correct. And the plaque is in store there. At some point, it might be nice to display it. Uh, maybe some, with some of the other orphaned plaques that have come off buildings which have no other place to go. So that's something that we might consider doing.
0: I think you've just given us an idea for another podcast, Howard. The ghosts of... Of, the ghost of, plaques, of, yes. of blue plaques, yes. Well, that sort of concludes our discussion about Lawrence Oates then and his selfless act and the fact that his um, London property is no longer standing and was demolished in 2000. But regarding his two other expedition mates, Edward Adrian Wilson and Robert Falcon Scott, they were connected to Battersea and Chelsea. What kind of properties... Are there plaques still on?
1: Well, Scott, his plaque is in Oakley Street in, in Chelsea, actually a few doors down from where we unveiled a plaque to Bob Marley in 2019. So it's at 56 Oakley Street, and it's a, it's a terrace of 19th century houses on a road that goes down to a, a river crossing, which actually goes over into Battersea uh, Park. And it um, marks a house where he, he lived with his mother just before he, he got married. This was in... In the Edwardian period, for about two or three years, it was it was rented by them. And Edward Adrian Wilson as well? His is on Battersea Vicarage, which is 42 Vicarage Crescent Battersea. That's where he was from 1895 to eight. And he was there as part of a sort of university settlement. He was a very committed Christian and he was there to sort of do good works in the Battersea area. Unfortunately, he caught TB while he was there which does make it all the more remarkable that he then went on to go on a major Antarctic uh, expedition.
0: Yes, definitely. Well, that's the sort of Scott of the Antarctic crew. But if we move on to another famous name, Sir Ernest Shackleton, who was born in 1874, died in 1922. He's connected to Lewisham, and I gather he's also Irish.
1: That's right. Yes, he was born in County Kildare. His father was a doctor who moved the family to Sydenham when Ernest was a small child. And he lived there in what was then called Aberdeen House. Uh, It was then 12 West Hill Sydenham, now called Westwood Hill Sydenham. And uh, while there, Shackleton went to prep school and he then went on to Dulwich College, where he's uh, extensively remembered and commemorated.
0: So, as you say, his boyhood home was in Sydenham, and this is where the uh, blue plaque is. This was erected in 1928.
1: That's right. Only six years after he died. Um, we, we now have a rule of have to wait 20 years after somebody's passed. But it does, it's a measure of his celebrity at the time, the fact that they put it, so, put it up so soon after his death.
0: About the circumstances of his death, for people who don't know, how did Shackleton die?
1: Well, he died on a, on a final sort of sub-Antarctic um, expedition to South Georgia. He had a heart attack and he was only in his
0: late 40s.
1: But I think by that time, the privations of his uh, earlier expeditions had caught up with him a bit, sadly.
0: So what was it about his childhood in Sydenham that would have given us a clue that he was going to become an, an explorer one day?
1: Well, he, he wasn't conventionally academic, although he was interested in, in things like poetry. I mean, he caused some consternation on an early sort of merchant Navy voyages by taking uh, volumes of poetry on board with him, which wasn't actually that usual. But as, as a child, there was there were more sort of palpable signs that he was he was a fairly adventurous character. He used to enjoy climbing on the roof of uh, the, the house in Sydenham, which has got a very steep pitched roof with a sort of flat top to it. Right. And he used to enjoy scaling the tiles and sitting on top of the house. So there we are. That was that was a sort of an er, an early sign. He was also his major hobby at the time was carpentry. So this would have presumably come in handy later for building shelters. Yes, uh, he built he built sheds he built as a child. He built adult sized sheds for the uh, back garden. And there was an even more palpable sign perhaps of what was to come when he on one of his first merchant navy trips. He um, brought back a nest of alligators with him and kept them in the garden. Until apparently the entire domestic staff at number 12 Westwood Hill threatened resignation unless he got rid of them, so he had to.
0: Now, he's, as we said, quite a famous name. Born in 1874, so he's a little bit younger than Scott, who was born in 1868, but they actually had experience of each other, didn't they?
1: Well, yes, that's right. They went on the National Antarctica Expedition 1901 to 4, and Shackleton actually was was sort of under Scott. He was a subordinate on that expedition, and they worked together.
0: And how many times did Shackleton undertake expeditions to Antarctica, particularly?
1: There was three large ones, and then I said this this later one on which he died, which was a sort of sub uh, Antarctic expedition. But there was uh, other than that was nineteen oh seven to nine, an abortive attempt to get to the pole, and then nineteen fourteen to seventeen, which was the Endurance expedition, which was actually an attempt to. Traverse Antarctica, which was not successful. In fact, that wasn't done until the 1950s in the end. So it was an incredibly ambitious thing to do.
0: Wow. Uh, but that's his career in a nutshell. What were his key achievements then, would you say?
1: Well, probably what he's best known for is getting the entire crew of Endurance off when it got wedged in, in pack ice. Uh, there were 28 of them, including Shackleton. Uh, this was in 1915. And he, he got out by using a mixture of sledging and boats to get to Elephant Island, which was on the Antarctic coast. And then he and five others sailed 800 miles to South Georgia in the South Atlantic to organise a relief party for the others. And he basically they all survived. They all got out, which was an extraordinary achievement. And not just down to Shackleton, it has to be said. There was a navigator, the captain of the Endurance, was Frank Worsley, who was a New Zealander. And the navigational feats of finding South, South Georgia, which, remember, is a fairly small island in the middle of the South Atlantic. And he's trying to use, you know, theodolites and all the rest of it while the, there's the yaw and the, the movement of the boats. And they did actually manage to hit it, which was pretty extraordinary. And they did it in the nick of time. They they had supplies for a month and they got there in a month. And they were basically, you know, they were they were fairly close to death by the time they got there. And when they did get to South Georgia, they actually landed on the wrong side of the island because there was a storm raging and they just had to get ashore because of the state of some of the men. Shackleton and two others, including Worsley, then walked across the interior of South Georgia, which had actually never been done before. And they did it without maps. They had no maps. They just had to sort of feel their way towards Stromness, which is the whaling station where they knew they could get help. And then in the words of Shackleton, three scarecrows walked into the whaling station and gave the Norwegian whalers there a bit of a shock. And
0: Goodness from then on, me.
1: the relief organisation was was organised. So yeah, I mean, I guess that's his major achievement, and that's why he's fairly heavily celebrated today. I mean, again, it's a great it's a great story of exploration and a human interest story, and he got them out alive. I mean, it's 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 really uh, quite extraordinary.
0: Exactly. This was all back in 1915. So just three years after the deaths of Oates, Wilson and Scott and the two other men in the Scott to South Pole voyage. So I suppose those deaths and those tragedies would have been quite fresh in his mind as he came up with his plan to um, reach that whaling station eventually.
1: That's right. I mean, I think he was, he was also, I mean, he, he'd shown a certain degree of caution before. I mean, I say his own attempt to get to the pole. When he, and he did get fairly close. And this was in the 1907-9 to uh, expedition, failed. And he, he he turned around when he realised it wasn't going to work. So he, he turned around before disaster hit, basically. Mm. And he said when he got back to, to England to his wife in 1909, desperately disappointed about not having made it to the pole, he said, better a living donkey than a dead lion. So that was his kind of attitude.
0: Well, I, I kind of like um, Shackleton's wisdom and the fact that he lived to tell the tale on his own. So what were the circumstances of Shackleton's death eventually in um, 1922?
1: Well, this was on his final sub-Antarctic uh, expedition, which was to sort of go around some of the um, islands on the Antarctic coast. And he got, to, got as far as South Georgia, the place he'd been rescued from, and by accident got to know really rather well.
0: And he has this heart attack. He died there of a heart
1: attack, yeah. And in his late 40s, I mean, I think probably the privations of previous uh, expeditions had caused up with him.
0: Was his body brought back to the UK?
1: No, he was buried on South Georgia.
0: So another one who um, sort of had a poetic ending in a way. So we've charted, when we look back at all this, six key figures in the history of both Arctic and Antarctic exploration, all of whom are recognised with their blue plaques in London at their former homes. To what extent would you say did they help to further our understanding of the polar regions and of the globe as a whole? If we look at some of our earlier figures they were very important because they were key to map making so that's one thing
1: that's very important obviously that kind of helps to lay the ground for future developments there was also the scientific observations that they produced which are of ongoing importance for things that that, that concern us now such as you know the retreat of polar ice and all that kind of stuff which has now become startlingly relevant to us of course so they were all pioneering figures in their own way essentially
0: yes and I suppose another thing we've just touched on now is caution. Shackleton was perhaps a more cautious explorer than the others. Would that be a fair thing to say? That perhaps he learnt from the others' mistakes.
1: That's right. Well, I'm absolutely absolutely Cherry Garrard, who was the guy that wrote up the whole history of polar exploration, really, or this part of it, in the 1920s, and who'd been on the Scott expedition, but not part of the final push. He said that, you know, Shackleton was the one you wanted to lead you if you were in a hole because of that sort of degree of caution, I guess, uh, and care for the people in his charge. So, yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it.
0: And lastly, Howard, how would you sort of look back on this period of um, relatively recent human history in the last century or back into the 1800s as well? It's a really important time for the nation, isn't it? Um, It's really pushing the boundaries of knowledge well before the space race of um, recent decades, these were sort of the heroes, the men who had the right stuff of the 1800s and, and early 1900s who were really exploring regions of planet Earth that hadn't been explored before. They were the pioneers of a new kind of exploration and you know the furthest tips of the northern and southern hemisphere were that. So I suppose that's quite a remarkable thing. That sort of places this in context in a way for the modern person.
1: It was the final frontier. Absolutely. Yes, it was at that time. You know, if you want to use the Star Trek phrase, it was it was the Antarctica was the final frontier and the Arctic regions, too. And these were people that willingly uh, took large uh, risks in order for that sort of thrill of adventure and discovery. And, and of course, I mean, there was there was you can't forget the uh, trading imperatives, too. I mean, this urge to find the Northwest Passage was partly about the sort of imperial urge to trade and to expand the, the empire. and So on. that's that's part of the story, too. But there is, there is a sort of the pure adventure side of it as well. I mean, all these people we talked about were pretty extraordinary individuals. They weren't, in many cases, very clubbable. They weren't particularly drawn to society. They didn't mind being in, in isolated places and faraway places for long periods of time. But they were all pioneers in their own way.
0: Yes, and they were willing to take on extraordinary risks and potentially pay with it with their lives, as some of them did. Indeed. So I think that's really worth uh, doffing our caps to, in a way. Absolutely, yes. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll hear about the winter traditions that arrive after Christmas.
1: Wustling is the Southern English version of a whole complex of customs. To bless a house and a farm, to make the place feel fortunate and happy.
0: Thanks for listening. See you next time.